The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. My name is Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And in studio with us, we have author and apologist Kirk Hastings. Welcome again, Kirk. Hi, guys. It's good to have you back. We are, are going to be talking today about some places that we've been. Kirk and Mike were both at an Answers in Genesis conference, which was yesterday, and I just flew back yesterday from New Orleans, where I was at the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting, and that was a terrific time, ate a lot of good food. Sorry, guys, didn't get a chance to bring any back from you for you, but uh, I had uh, fried oyster po'boys. Wow. Yeah, really well, I'm good. I'm glad you didn't bring any of that back. <laughs> that was good. It was good. And something, they have something down there called a muffaletta sandwich. That is awesome. That is really good. So I can expect a, an appointment with you in the morning? Uh, yeah, that's right. My doctor there, yeah. <laughs> Gastroenteritis, right? Well, uh, there's one thing in the news that I thought we would cover today before we get into today's show, and that is Fox News is reporting that a Vatican researcher has found text, hidden text, written on the Shroud of Turin. What do you think, guys? Hmm. Hidden huh. text. Does it say Kilroy was here? <laughs> no, it supposedly says Jesus of Nazareth, and it uh, has some details. They think they're, they're saying that it might have details about uh, what was done to the body, crucified, and like an official... Um, like paperwork that somebody wrote out a paper that said, you know, this is the body of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Nazarene executed on, you know, such and such a day and, you know, the body will be returned to the uh, family in one year or something like that. Um, very interesting. So it's Jesus a, signed it like a souvenir? <laughs> right, or? somebody, right. Here, sign this paper and we'll give you the body. And then it was supposedly um, glued to the shroud to and that somehow the ink then transferred to the shroud wow um I, just reading over it i mean this is a two-page news item so i don't want to bother everybody with reading it but um you know and and i actually do uh, my personal belief is that the evidence is that the shroud of turin was the burial cloth of of jesus um but there's you know, ridiculous things too. The, the you know the human brain is a wonderful thing. One of the things that's so gifted about it is its ability to find order and uh, regularity in the midst of chaos. I mean, this is what makes people good hunters. You know, when they can be looking through dense foliage and they can see an animal. You know, um, it, it's part of what we need. God gave us this to survive. So this is an example of way too much uh, imagination and trying to pull details out of um, what's really just shadow and light and very magnified images and, you know. Human beings possess a great sense of humor, too. Yeah. Well, this I don't think she means this is a joke, but, um, but it's, it's, we'll see who has the last laugh. 
Okay. Well, uh, let's hear about, we're not going to bore you too much with um, uh, EPS, Evangelical Philosophical Society stuff today. Uh, we're going to cut to the chase and do the stuff that Mike and Kirk were at. That was the Answers in Genesis seminar uh, featuring Jim Garner, who uh, who we did have uh, in studio last week. And uh, was. Put and this up- is not the Jim Gardner from Channel 6. Oh. He kept telling us that. Oh, okay. Make I didn't sure even you- know there was a Jim Gardner from Channel 6. Yeah, the news anchor on Channel 6. Ah. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, well, that's good that we know that for those who are confused out there. Uh, if you're interested in joining the uh, talk today, you can call us at 609-398-1020. So Pilgrim Academy put this on, right? Yes. In fact, uh, I was very, very impressed by the turnout. There were actually 285 people in attendance. Wow. Uh, and I would say maybe a quarter of them were students, but mostly um, uh, adults who had uh, questions and were looking for answers. And uh, by the way, folks, uh, Mr. Gardner will also be speaking tonight at 630 uh, at the Emanuel Church in Egg Harbor. And it's very easy to get to Route 50 and the White Horse Pike. You'll see the marquee uh, approximately a half a block uh, uh, in the Hamilton direction from that main intersection. That's uh, Route 50 and uh, the White Horse Pike in uh, Egg Harbor City. Uh, but anyway, Mr. Gardner will be speaking there tonight. Uh, he was a very, very, very excellent speaker. He came very well prepared with PowerPoint presentation and um, basically armed us in a very, very good way, not only with uh, reading materials, uh, books, uh, DVDs, and so forth that were provided by the Answers in Genesis crowd, uh, but uh, he gave us um, uh, some ways to deal with those people who are very skeptical about creationism mm. and who are bent on evolution, which he feels is actually destroying our society. Wow. Yeah. We should probably also mention that um, Mr. Gardner is part of a group called uh, Canopy. It's a creation teaching ministry. Okay. That's and they're, his. they're associated with Answers in Genesis and okay. the Institute for Creation Research, which I think all had a little th- something to do with this conference. Right. And you guys had, there was a uh, book uh, book table there. Very oh, yeah. Good. yeah. I spent a fortune there buying <laughs> books and DVDs. <laughs> good. Now, the time for this thing tonight, then, for people who want to go? Do we? 6.30. 6.30, mm-hmm. okay. So 6.30 at the Emmanuel Church. Well, looking at the itinerary, I really would have loved to have been there if it hadn't been for the my conflict. And looking at the itinerary, it looks like you guys had some great courses there. Um, let's go through some of these and see um, what you can fill us in on. The first was the consequences of the path you choose. So... What was he talking about on, in that that class? Well, he, he basically said that there are two choices that are presented to students and to people. Uh, typically, this occurs at a very young age um, uh, because in the, in the public school system, uh, the secular uh, mainstream thought is uh, their science is based on evolutionary uh, thought. And uh, he, he stressed the point that it was theory. There was nothing really factual about it. Uh, It's conjecture and speculation on their part. But the choices are either evolution and a belief in no God uh, and random chance circumstances um, are what defined uh, life. Whereas if you believe in a creator God, um, you understand that there's a, a beginning and that there is an end 
but it ends in your eternal destination. Uh, he made a very, very strong point about uh, everybody is born with eternal life, but that you choose where you will spend eternity. That is the smoking section or the non-smoking section. <laughs> okay. All right. So he so he um, compared the two different um, ways or choices mm-hmm. that people have. Did he go over some of the evidences on both sides, or or was this all just part of introductory material? Well, it was more or less an orientation to one's worldview. You know, if you have a Christian worldview, it's the foundational truth is creation, creationism. Um, and absolute truth is based on God's Word and God's laws, and basically the Ten Commandments are those laws. And that's what al- allows a society to function uh, in a good, positive way, because every action has a, circum- uh, a, uh, a consequence. Um, it's also based on marriage and hence the propagation of the society. It's based on standards. People are expected to behave in a certain way. Um, There is a good amount of meaning given to life so that the choices you make, not only in your adulthood, but also when it comes to uh, marriage and pregnancy, uh, there's a certain degree of meaning uh, to that. So this this would actually constitute the uh, the Christian worldview. On the other hand, if you have an evolutionary mindset, you don't believe in any absolutes. You believe that everything is by random chance, happenstance, mm-hmm. uh, and that things came into being over millions or even billions and billions of years, um, and that um, uh, man is the one who has the final word. He's in control of his own destiny, and God has no place and no business in this rational mindset. Uh, this leads to lawlessness, um, school violence, uh, people have no accountability, nor did they have any uh, reason to be held accountable um, because they don't believe that there is a supreme lawgiver or supreme justice. Uh, they know that they can beat the legal system if they have to. Um, it leads to um, immorality. For instance, uh, pornography is so pervasive today, it's probably the number one um, problem that's confronting uh, people who are uh, thinking about being married or staying married. Uh, he also made a comment that it also allows for the growth of uh, homosexual tendencies and behaviors. Uh, it also leads to uh, the abortion controversy, which allows a woman to make that choice, and it's her right and has been since the early 70s. And so consequently, if you, if you engage this humanistic worldview set, then you uh, have these choices to make, and pretty much you're in control of your own destiny, and God has no business being a part of it and that um, um, there's no accountability. Okay. He's really talking about anarchy. Evolution leads to no standards, no uh, rules, no regulations, no laws. Mm-hmm. Every individual is his own God and does as he pleases. Yeah, and he even made the point that this is the reason why uh, uh, situations such as Columbine occur, you know, because uh, we have systematically been taking the uh, the Ten Commandments out of not only the school system, but also society as a whole. You know, this started back in uh, 62 with uh, Madeleine O'Hare, uh, with the, uh, uh, the extraction of prayer, if you will, out of the public school system. Uh, and I can actually remember that. I'm sure you can, Kirk, too. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I, I remember... I remember we, like in the first and second grade where we used to say a prayer at the beginning of the day, and then we would do the Pledge of Allegiance... And I 
think I'm not positive, but I think we like read a verse out of the Bible too. Yeah, and we sang my, the day con- my country, tis of thee, and and so yeah. forth, but not anymore. You and know, now they her. have um, a kid on the on CNN and on Fox News that's saying that he won't say the Pledge of Allegiance because he feels that uh, it says liberty and justice for all at the end, and he feels that because homosexuals are not allowed to marry one another, that we don't have liberty and justice for all in this country, according to him, so he's going to refuse to say it. Right. Right, and he's a 10-year-old kid. Yeah, everyone knows what is right in their own mind. And now, you know, that's the thing that frightens me about that is that could open a floodgate where kids all over the country are going to say, well, I don't believe we should slaughter whales, so I'm not going to say the Pledge of Allegiance, (laughs) or I don't believe we should do this, and I'm not going to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and pretty soon you're going to have hundreds of different viewpoints all as an excuse for not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Uh, you can reach us by calling 609-398-1020. I so, also liked uh, Mr. Gardner's, I believe he got it from Henry Morris. He gave a little quote. He said a uh, uh, his favorite definition of what evolution is is that it's from goo to you through the zoo exactly okay so now it sounds like what he's setting up then is this dichotomy of choices you've got a choice that leads to a a, uh, life of morals and and uh, beneficence towards others or you have yeah standards or you have uh, a a worldview right where there there is no free will there's no uh, standards and so you're driven got, by your genes and your instincts and everything else and you don't have much to do with it so now i agree that that's so that's kind of the pragmatic issue then he's he's warning us and saying hey look if we believe this we get one result right if we go the other way we get another result that but was some, one of the first things he said when he started his lecture he said that ideas have consequences yes so and then he went on to explain the consequences of both these opposing ideas of creation mm-hmm. and evolution so so, um, so there's value to this argument. I mean, I agree this is a valid argument. But then the atheist would then turn around and say, well, um, we have to go search for truth, and we have to follow the truth no matter where it leads, even if it leads to a kind of world where um, morals are not what you Christians say they ought to be. Um, well, I would agree with the first half of that, that we have to follow truth wherever it leads. But the question is, where is the evidence leading us? So There's different right. opinions there. So and, and the question was posed by Pilate himself, what is truth? And Gee, our, that sounds like a good book title. Our friend Kirk, in fact, wrote such a book called What is Truth? That's right. Well, we might as well plug your book right now, Kirk. Says, uh, why don't you tell us about your book and where people can buy it? Uh, Well, I wrote a book uh, called What is Truth, and the subtitle of it is A Handbook for Separating Fact from Fiction in a Propaganda-Filled World. And you can basically, uh, you can order it from any bookstore. You can get it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, pretty much any of the online bookstores. Great. Great. So you did you you must have slipped Mike a, a, a dollar before the show to. I'll split it with you. <laughs> Five actually. But you know, Keith, he only told me a dollar. The the interesting thing was that um, Mr. Gardner made an excellent point: is that our kids are being exposed 
systematically at such a young age, mm-hmm. even as low down as grade school, third, fourth, and fifth grade, about evolution and how oh, it's being taught. I'd say taught. even younger than that. It's being taught as fact, uh, when in fact right. he 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 gave these specific definitions for science and scientific method versus um, um, science fiction. Mm. And we'll be happy to share those definitions with you and let the viewers or the listeners uh, make their own decision. Yeah, that was very As opposed to what is fact and what is fiction. Well, I know uh, when I was at EPS, uh, they had Answers in Genesis had a bookstore there, and they were giving away a free book by Ken Ham called Already Gone. I do recommend this to uh, anyone out there who's concerned about their children who are Christians growing up in the church and then leaving the church. There have been several studies, one by a Baptist uh, group, one by uh, Barna has done a study that showed, I believe, 60 or 70 percent of uh, kids, Christian kids, going away to college do not return to the church. Mm -hmm. Well, this study done by Answers in Genesis showed that the reason that they're not coming back is not because when they get to college they're getting all these hard questions. In fact, only 10% of those who don't come back were got their first doubts in college. Actually, 40% plus have their first doubts in middle school, and mm. another 40% have their doubts in high school. So the title of the book is Already Gone. The kids that you see when you go to church and you see young kids in junior high and high school sitting there in your church, 60% of them have already left from their in mentally. They have mm-hmm. already they already think this is a huge waste of time. It's not true. Uh, it's not that they believe in evolution so much. Actually, you know, just as the population at large really don't believe in this uh, from y- from goo to you by way of the zoo mentality. Uh, uh, you know, these kids are smart enough to figure out that that is really, really improbable and implausible and just mm-hmm. doesn't make much sense. Um, but they don't think that the Bible's reliable. Um, you know, they don't think that Christianity has something to offer them. Well, that's, but the that's world the problem. does. That's the problem when churches don't teach people apologetics and right. the evidences for the reliability of the Bible while these kids are growing up, so that once they get to college and they get this opposite viewpoint stuffed down their throat and they're told that this is science, they're like, whoa, you know, they don't have anything to bring back against this. Right. And that's hence the purpose of our radio show, to try and educate people so that they can help their children make these right choices and based on the evidence. And that's, that's the basis for these seminars that Mr. Gardner is giving across the country, is yep. to give people the evidence so they can know what they believe is true and that the Bible is reliable. And I would even go so far as that uh, the the substrate of Answers in Genesis uh, and radio shows uh, such as ours or even Mr. Hastings' book is so that we can help our young people, even in, in a, a, a junior high school uh, context, Understand the meaning of, of these choices that we make, but more than that, make them defenders of the faith instead of being pretenders. Because right. we can have our kids in, in church every Sunday, and they know the hymns, and they know what to do, and what to say, and, and how to act, and all that stuff. But when they're with their kids in school, you know, their, their peers in school, their behavior is completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they understand and truly believe 
the validity of the Bible and and the the, the factual basis or lack of factual basis uh, on the science of evolution, then they could really understand why there is a Creator God and that there is order in the universe because God said so, not because the the high school biology teacher said so. Well, I've been thrilled today to find out I teach um, Christian worldview to the high school kids at my church, and I was thrilled today to find out that one of the students has been using what she's been learning in our class with her schoolmates. So um, that you know, it's if you get kids knowledgeable, and mm. and that's why. They, at this young age, they've already decided to leave the church because somebody else has been giving them knowledge and information. They're not too young to see the importance of things like evolution and whether Scripture is reliable or not. These things really matter. And I think that's what Mr. Gardner was uh, getting at with this talk. One of the things he wanted people to understand is that when you get out into the secular world, and especially in colleges and universities, basically what they're teaching is that the idea of creation is religion, but mm. evolution is science. Right. And yeah, the implication, the unstated implication behind that idea is that science is true, but religion is uh, is not. It's just faith. Right. Yep. You know, while we're on that 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 topic, Keith, let me let me just give you the definition of true science, uh, and this is this is something that's universally held by uh, the scientific community. Uh, define science, it's as follows. It's the study of a body of facts systematically arranged and dealing with laws of science, and they must be observable, testable, and repeatable. Observable, testable, and repeatable. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you the definition of science fiction. Okay? Science fiction is a form of fiction that draws from imaginative speculation and not facts or science. This is something that we would see, for instance, from Hollywood, okay? But it's contrary to the scientific method and scientific thought and the definition of science as I've just given to you. Now, with that being said, I want to make two points about a belief in evolution. If you truly believe in evolution, that evolution occurred over billions of years, then what you're saying is that you totally believe in spontaneous generation which we know as a biological law. Which, according to the laws of evolution, that's how it all started. Correct. Spontaneous generation, okay? Right. It started in the primordial soup. And furthermore, you can't believe in the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics says that the, the amount of matter and energy in the universe remains constant. The two are interchangeable. I mean, Einstein said that with his E equals MC squared. They can be changed, but they can only go in one direction. They can't you, be created or destroyed. Right. You can't take uh, energy and create matter, okay? But you can take matter, for instance, nuclear fission, and create a whole lot of energy, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Um, so if you truly believe in evolution, you believe in spontaneous ev um, uh, generation, and you cannot believe in the first and second laws of uh, thermodynamics. Mm. So with that being said, their argument is defeated right off the bat. Yeah, the second law of thermodynamics says that everything in the universe is winding down. That's correct. Yet evolution would have us believe exactly the opposite, that everything is winding up. Right, exactly right. right. The second law of thermodynamics is all about entropy, uh, and this goes contrary to anything uh, that would start from primordial goo or the soup and become a life form that's uh, that can replicate itself. So the truth is really 
on our side, which happens to be the side which has the uh, moral standards and all the rest of it that goes for a good society. Well, I'll take it one step further, just from a medical point of view. Um, one of the problems that evolutionists have had for centuries is they can never and have never been able to, and I doubt very much that they will ever be able to explain um, 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 procreation and uh, the, 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 you know, generating the, the next generation from whatever life form it is. Uh, they That's can't something explain. I've always wondered about is how do evolutionists uh, explain the fact that the two sexes evolved they, they at the same time so that they could work with each other to procreate? Eventually. How does that work? Over billions of years. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they can't explain sexual reproduction. That's the Did bottom line. Did we start line. out with one sex that reproduced asexually and then it's called a hermaphrodite. moved on to the two sexes or what? I never that, hear any explanations there, there about that. There is none. <laughs> there is none that works. Now, if you have a completely created individual, uh, male and female, each after its own kind, and I read that someplace, each after its own kind, then you can have procreation and sexual reproduction. All right, guys. Uh, the second class that you went to, uh, Dinosaurs and Dragons, Fact or Myth. Is that right? Oh, that was really interesting. Okay, tell us about it. Uh, the thing that struck me the most, he, he said a lot of really interesting things about that, about there are actually uh, a lot of pictures and historical records of past civilizations of pictures of dinosaurs and he showed some of these pictures and some of them are like a one of them from i think it was uh thousands of years ago in ancient china had a had a picture on a wall that looked exactly like a stegosaurus with the plates on its back and the spikes on its tail and everything dinosaurs were not discovered until 1851 when the first fossils and bones started to be dug up how did they know what this creature looked like and the other thing that was really interesting to me was he showed a picture of something that they found not long ago a mummified uh duck-billed dinosaur now for anybody who knows what a mummy is and how they're formed and you know the scientific you know stuff about it a mummy after a certain age turns to dust you can't have a dinosaur that's millions of years old and find it as a mummy. It's just impossible. It wouldn't last that long. Right. Yeah, two, and two to 3,000 years was the, the number that he gave that's uh, applicable to mummified material that it turns into powder. Yeah, after that, it disintegrates. Yeah. Well, and now, even we, the evolutionists are absolutely baffled by this. They're trying to figure out how could we have found a mummified dinosaur. Don't we have mummies from the Egyptian period that are 3,000, sure. 4,000 years old? Sure. Well, you just said they last 2,000 to 3,000 years. There's one that's 3,000, 4,000 years old. So the implication from observation now, from, from the evidence of this mummified dinosaur, is this duck-billed dinosaur must have been walking around in the time of ancient Egypt. Ah, so it's only 4,000. Now, doesn't so that mess the evolutionary time scale up? But it can't be 75 million years old. No, Correct. absolutely not. And cool. he, makes, he makes a good point that, uh, that dinosaurs were actually walking with relatively modern man in the last uh, two, three, four, five thousand years. Uh, he made a good point about one of the most advanced cultures ever known to be on this planet, and that's the Chinese culture. Now, if you look at their calendar, and everybody knows that every year it's the, you know, the year of the chicken or the year of the pig or the year mm-hmm. of the, the dinosaur, mm-hmm. well, why would they have 12 creatures and only one of them mythical and the other 12 real? Mm. doesn't make sense. 
The point yeah, is, one is, is the year of the dragon. Yes. All the other creatures are familiar creatures, but why would they name this one year after a mythical creature? Right. That doesn't make sense. Right. Very the implication is there were dragons at one point. Any other yeah. any other finds? Uh, well, the, the interesting thing was that uh, again the, the word dinosaur wasn't defined in Webster's dictionary until 1840 something mm. because they were starting to find these things right. and but if you go to Job you can find, depending on the translation, either dragon or behemoth, uh, or, and, leviathan or leviathan or sea monster. Yes, with with a tail like a cedar tree. Now, cedar being the Lebanon uh, cedars of Lebanon, huge, huge tails. You know, this some is not, people have translated this to say that this is a description of, for instance, an elephant. But when was the last time you saw an elephant with a tail like a cedar a tree? A cedar tree. But so a now, brontosaurus. Now that fits. And this is a description in the Bible. Yes. Written in the Bible. In the book of Job, which is probably one of the oldest books in the Bible. Now something I've heard about is the recent discoveries um, by Secular University about red blood cells and tissue, uh, including veins and things, inside the bone of the Tyrannosaurus rex and other. Now they've confirmed it in other dinosaur bones. Did he talk about that? that? Yes. He said that they found soft tissue in some of these dinosaur bones recently. And this is another thing that's driving the evolutionists crazy. They don't know what to make of this because it's impossible for this thing to be millions of years old and still have soft tissue in it. Absolutely yeah, the impossible. The marrow the, of the The bone. marrow was present. Uh, they have actual DNA uh, within the marrow, and uh, it's a, a rubbery uh, material because it's still preserved. It's almost a, a collagenous uh, uh, goo, if you will, inside uh-huh. the marrow itself of this bone. It was actually dropped by accident at one of the research labs, and to their amazement, they found actual red marrow as you would find in, and in blood cells and red blood it. cells of course um shades of jurassic park <laughs> so so it, it it's amazing to me that you could then believe that stuff like that could have existed in the ground and this is we're not talking about in maybe frozen for 75 million years we're talking about um you know being in the deserts uh, in the united states where they found this stuff so it's just mm-hmm. just buried in the ground in in um limestone or sandstone, mm-hmm. uh, 75 million years, and it's supposedly still intact. I don't think so. Yeah, you have to understand that but the, it's amazing the duck-billed dinosaur is not a fossil. It's a mummy. That's well, a totally different thing. Did you? Uh, did he say where that was found or where? He didn't specify, but I've, I've actually heard that before, and I could probably dig that information up and give it to you on a future show. It'd be great to go. I, I definitely visit, want to do more research on that. Visit that museum and actually see that one. That'd yeah, he showed a photograph of it that was amazing. So, well, so, so one more comment about yeah. the, the dinosaurs. So the big question is, what happened to the dinosaurs? What do you think, Kurt? What happened to the dinosaurs? Uh, gee, that's a good question. Uh, maybe a meteor wiped them all out. Yeah, he he gave all of the the evolutionary naturalistic explanations as to why the dinosaur population uh, got wiped out. Um, but the bottom line is that they became extinct. Uh, he suggested perhaps it was that it became a, a trophy uh, for many of the hunters. And by the way, there was a a, a knight in the Middle Ages that was given credit for slaying a dragon. And they said that it was not mythical, and I can't remember who it was. Was it... Um, I should know this. Was it King Arthur? St. George. Yeah, it was... St. George. 
<clears throat> yeah, St. George and the Dragon. Yeah. Right. They have pictures that go, you know, way back into medieval times of St. George and the Dragon. And some of these drawings look amazingly like dinosaurs. Hey, exactly. And they showed a, a picture of his um, a burial site inside of a, a church. And on the coffin, uh, where where the the, the the stone over over top of the uh, coffin, mm. they had emblazoned pictures of dinosaurs. Wow! So I mean, yeah, one looked exactly like an, a brontosaurus. Another one looked exactly like a duck-billed dinosaur. And this is like hundreds of years before we discovered that these animals even existed. And remember, there were no there were no places that they could have looked this thing up as a mythical thing in in a book, right? Because they looked just like um, the brontosaurus. Okay, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings. You can call us at 609-398-1020 if you'd like to join in the conversation, ask us questions, or give us challenges. Uh, also, you can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com, our website, evidence4faith.com, and that is where you can also send requests for us to speak at your church or school, or if you have an atheist uh, that you'd like to have us debate, we are willing to do that too, as we have in the past. All right, so we're talking about this uh, conference that was at the Pilgrim Academy in Egg Harbor City, and the speaker was Jim Gardner, James Gardner, who we had on the show last week. Um, You guys went to another talk that he did called The Fossils Grand Canyon and the flood. Now that sounds very interesting. I've been to the Grand Canyon on a geological tour myself, spent a week rafting down the river with my family. It was beautiful, had a wonderful time, saw a lot of amazing things. What did he have to say about that? Mike, anything that you uh, think our listeners would be interested in on that talk? Well, yeah, he uh, he actually showed a lot of aerial uh, photographs of the various um, um, sites of the creation of the uh, Grand Canyon, and he extended it all the way up to Bryce Canyon and so forth. And if you look at the the rim going from uh, the southern rim all the way around to the northern rim, these canyons were all contiguous, okay? And the creationists' uh, theory, uh, creation scientists' theory, is that there was a series of uh, sand or soft uh, mud-type dams that were holding back this huge lake at one time. And I can't remember the name of the lake. Um, do you remember, Kirk? Mm, no, yeah. actually, I think there are a couple of different yeah, there were formations. Yeah, a couple that of different lakes. They that say were, from the air, they can tell that uh, a long time ago they were huge lakes. Right, like the size of Lake Superior, I mean, mm-hmm. on that dimension. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that because of uh, a couple of breaks in these soft uh, dams, this torrential flood occurred. During the flood, right, uh, you know, with the uh, fountains of the deep breaking and, and the torrential rain and so forth, the lake was overwhelmed and it just overflowed, and the the canyon was cut within a matter of days to weeks, not over billions of years as the uh, archaeologists and evolutionists would suggest to you. Um, be, so instead of a little bit of water over a long period of time, they're suggesting that it was a lot of water over, over a, a very short, short period, period of time. Yes. Exactly. He brought up an interesting point how uh, a creationist and an evolutionist could look at the same evidence and come up with a totally different interpretation of it. He he was listening to one of the guides in the in the park while he was there, 
explaining to the people with him how, you know, over millions of years this carved this out and this carved that out. And he went over and started talking to the guy, and he said exactly what you just said, that I, he didn't think that it was a little bit of water over billions and billions of years that carved this. He thought it was a lot of water that carved it in a relatively short time. And, of course, the guy looked at him like, what are you, a nut? But really, I mean, either interpretation would work. Right. So how do you, you know, how do you determine which one is right? Well, what did he say? Did he give us any evidence that that version is correct? Well, yeah, he, uh, he basically said this. If there was any evidence whatsoever of a global flood, what would it be? And the answer is within the rock layers. You would have... Billions of dead things that were buried practically alive in sandstone rock layers and basically sedimentary rock. That were obviously buried quickly. Quickly, right. And you would find this evidence all over the world. Now, what do we have? In sedimentary rocks. We have billions of dead things buried in rock layers all over the world. And the archaeologists will explain it away as something else. One of the amazing things I remember from that trip that I was on was that some of the sandstone layers, some of the levels in the Grand Canyon, go continent-wide and even over onto other continents. So they can be connected together. These are the same layers that go halfway around the world, all into Siberia Mm -hmm. and all North America and Canada. So these amazing layers of sediment that are massively huge. So you're talking about if you know, if, if you didn't believe in a worldwide flood, at least the evidence is there for half a worldwide flood because there's at least that layer is covers half the globe already. Yeah, and they have areas where there's huge amounts of sedimentary rock on the tops of mountains. Yeah. How could sedimentary rock have gotten all the way up there unless at one point that mountain was underwater? Right. Yep. There's okay. no other explanation. Well, there is. It's the Cambrian Explosion. This is what the evolutionist, uh, archaeologist, paleontologist will tell us, that the Cambrian explosion was the sudden onset just immediately of, of all these various life forms. Now, the only problem with their theory is that the Cambrian explosion um, doesn't give us any uh, transitional fossil forms mm-hmm. where you have uh, the transition of one life form going to the next higher life form. These are all basically very, very uh, basic creatures that got stuck in mud, and then that mud dried out, and then it became sedimentary rock, and that's what we have. So this this would be uh, direct observable evidence that there was a massive mudslide and a flood, and as you said, it extends continents-wide. Did he talk about, there was an, another interesting thing that the geologists on our trip a couple of years ago in the Grand Canyon talked about, these nautiloid uh, shells and how they found millions and millions of them uh, at a certain level. Did he talk about that? That's no, very interesting. They were all pointing. They're, very, they're like a cone-shaped. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not the round nautiluses that you, that you think of in, uh, right. in uh, National Geographic pictures or something. But these are cone-shaped um, shells, and they're all pointing in virtually all of them are pointing in the same direction, which would indicate that as they a were flow buried... Of water made them settle that way. They were way. buried in flowing water. Yeah. So uh, this He is did mention something about uh, there's certain parts of the Grand Canyon, if you look at them from the air, 
the the rock formations all have ridges that all go in the same direction, which strongly suggests that some kind of flowing water formed them. Uh, interesting. Yeah. A deluge, w- rapid flowing water. Yes, a I lot of water. I don't know if he mentioned it, but I know I've seen uh, uh, actual demonstrations of flume experiments where scientists, geologists, will take massive amounts of water and dirt and mud and sand all mixed together and uh, flush it down a flume, you know, just have it flow down a big, um, uh, you know, trough-like mechanism with glass walls so that they can film it in high-speed cameras. And all this material layers out by itself Mm -hmm. into graduated layers. So you have, for instance, they'll mix uh, white uh, sand that's very fine with black sand that's very coarse. And they mix it all up. You know, big augers mixing it all up, and then they pour it down the flume, and you'll get layer after layer, black, white, black, white, black, white, black, white. They do the same thing on the Ocean City Boardwalk. Have you ever seen the the vendors that have the like the Coke bottles, and you fill them with colored sand? Right. And the the oh, sand, the different colors of sand are different types of sand, and they all group together so that you have swirls of color. Wow. Yeah, and it's, it's the same thing. Exactly. It's sand so, art, you know. So when yeah. you see those layer after layer perfectly flat sediments that are obviously laid down by water, mm-hmm. you know that they were actually all laid down simultaneously. He had another interesting little example where he showed a photograph of a piece of volcanic rock, and he said that scientists examined this and said that f- this kind of rock is obviously millions of years old. Well, in the process of moving it or something, they uh, I forget exactly what happened. They dropped it or somebody hit it with something or whatever, and it cracked in half. It was a geode. Yes, uh-huh. it's called a geode. Right. And what they found inside of it was a spark plug. Oh. <laughs> so the point is, is that geodes are supposedly uh, a rock formation that occur over millions of years, but right. either they had Chevys a million years ago right. or... <laughs> This was one or of those. this thing's more recent than we think. I've <laughs> seen a photograph of that. Yeah, it's yeah. a spark plug actually embedded in stone. It was yeah. in the geode. Now, yeah. the, other, the, other, the other evidence that he gave was uh, uh, Mount St. Helens. Um, um, he said that this was a catastrophic event of, of gas and mud and water uh, coming down this valley off the hillside in 1980 up in Washington State. And... Uh, things that got buried and instantly formed into rock because the heat and the pressure and so forth yes. were were very, very convincing uh, things. Now, we, we have actually a timeline of when that happened and how many years ago it happened. Mm. And they were taking rock samples from it, and they were sending it out for radiometric dating. And you know what they were told? The closest estimate that they could get was that this rock was formed 1.1 million years ago when it actually happened uh, almost 40 years ago. Right. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Very good. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And you can contact us at evidenceforfaith.com. Evidence, the number four, faith.com. All right, guys, you were at this Pilgrim Academy Answers in Genesis seminar. Uh, James Gardner was the speaker, and this was just yesterday. Mm -hmm. And the last class you went to was called The Mystery of Ancient Man. Mm. What was that about? Well, basically, if you're in school and you're being taught evolution, you're taught that uh, your great-great-great-great-grandfather was a primate, 
and that over eons of time that this primate evolved into uh, a rational upright um, uh, humanoid uh, with two feet and two hands and an imposable thumb. Um, <clears throat> now, with that in mind, you know, with this evolutionary mindset um, uh, as your beginning, what he wanted to demonstrate was that no, ancient civilizations that we have evidence for right now in this day and age of, of civilizations that have gone extinct really 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago demonstrated tremendous amounts of technological and um, engineering capabilities uh, with math and science and even possibly the ability to fly. Um, which which I found fascinating. Yeah. So what made them like think the Mayans that? and the Aztecs and the Egyptians and some of these ancient civilizations did amazing engineering feats without modern machinery that they can't figure out how they did it because the buildings and things they constructed are so complex. It's like today, if you used all kinds of modern machinery to build this stuff, it would take years to do it. Well, so the question is, how did these primitives do it? Maybe they weren't quite as primitive as we think. Well, I agree that might be true, that um, uh, you know, it might be hard for us to figure out how they did it, but it still seems like if they were very smart, had lots of engineering know-how, and mm -hmm. about you know, 10,000 or maybe even 100,000 slaves to do their work, that they could actually accomplish many amazing feats like building the pyramids with simple things like ramps and pulleys and uh, wheels and grease and things, and that they, where where does this come from? This idea about that they could fly. I've never heard this before. This is very. I'll let Mike take that one. That was interesting. Well, what what they found buried in in a number of uh, of uh, of sarcophagi, sarcoph sarcoph uh, sarcophagus is one of those things that they bury uh, people in. Uh, they found these little coffins <laughs> little little toy items that looked for all intents and purposes like a model airplane and they were about three inches long and they were made out of metal okay and if you looked at it and he showed pictures from multiple angles it looked for all intents and purposes like a jet aircraft okay the wings were the exact same shape as a modern jet the uh the tail was upright instead of horizontal uh -huh. which means they weren't trying to reproduce a bird here because birds don't have vertical tails. All right. I mean, it was amazing how much they looked like modern airplanes. So Maybe that just means that they had toys called gliders well, and the, they could throw... The, the, in, the Institute for Creation Research scientists took this scale mm -hmm. model yep. and they, they did computer-enhanced uh, drawings, some CAD um, calculations on it, yep. and they actually built a scale model uh, of these things a much that, were bigger about, one. that were about three feet long. Mm -hmm. They attached to it um, a modern radio-controlled motor, you know, and, and they took it out to see if it, if it would fly based on the CAD reproductions of this scale model. Right. And you know what they found? The thing flew flawlessly. Flew perfectly, just like modern airplanes. Okay. It sounds to me like were they, these, they had... And the question is, were these little toys based on real things that were much bigger. Like we have little toy airplanes and right. toy tractors and things today right. that are reproductions of things that are actually much larger. Interesting. Okay. Well, interesting. at least we can grant that it could very well have been a glider a glider toy that yes. uh, kids would play with. But they knew something about aerodynamics. Apparently. That's, yep. Yeah. Very interesting. I've, I've 
heard recently about a uh, mechanism that was dredged up from the Mediterranean, bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, all encrusted in stone, and uh, by it looked like some kind of very complicated clock mechanism and was dated to centuries and centuries ago. Um, he mentioned bef- something like that. Yes. They, oh, okay. they, they found an instrument that, that was yeah. basically fossilized, Correct. but it was almost exactly like a modern instrument used uh, by ships for navigation. Mm-hmm. A very complex thing. And did he say what they found out it was used for? Did he say it was for navigation? Navigation. Yes. Okay. okay. It was used by you know by a ship for navigation on the sea. All right. What what I've uh, heard and what they did is they used X-rays and things to penetrate because it's all basically fused together. Right. And so they they used special X-rays to penetrate to see how the gears would work, and they right. found out that it that it was a map of the solar system, that it could be laid out and it would actually make objects move. So it was it was the insides of a table or platform, and then above the platform wow. would be the the gears would actually make th- things move around, such as the earth around the sun, right. the moon around the earth, and things like that. So, and, and now we're talking back to Roman and Greek times. Right. So amazingly uh, complex. So it just sh- shows that people were not as unintelligent. If, you know, your idea is that people are growing from ape into man, and they're getting smarter and smarter as you go along— reality as far back as we go into civilization we find that human beings are intelligent and sometimes even more intelligent than or at least appear they could have been more intelligent than we are today right he mentioned things like stonehenge and some of the ancient mayan calendars and everything that are incredibly exact in uh like stonehenge the way it's it's perfectly formed to uh, reflect the rays of the sun exactly the right way, that it functions as a an astronomical calendar, and it functions as this, and it functions as that, and it's like, how did these ancient, you know, quote savages, know how to do all this? Right. right. Yeah, and even the, the Mayan ruins, which which, uh, for all intents and purposes, look just like a uh, uh, an Egyptian pyramid. If you are standing at that Mayan ruin, on the uh, vernal equinox or on the autumnal equinox, that's roughly, well, let's say March 20th and, and of course, uh, um, September 20th, the rising sun and the setting sun go directly through the portals, uh, right through the middle of this big pyramid. Mm-hmm. And at midday, the sun shines straight down through the opening on the top, mm-hmm. and it illuminates the king, who is a uh, statue in repose, and on top of his chest is where the altar is, where they would put uh, a sacrificed human heart. Mm. In other words, they, they believed in human sacrifice, and they would sacrifice somebody typically on a day when those uh, rays of light uh, penetrated perfectly. So they did seem to have some kind of at least sophisticated astronomical knowledge. Yes, mm-hmm. so I've quite al- a bit. I've also heard of uh, stones in the Middle East uh, where you know huge stones with holes drilled through them so that the stone could be set up and would be extremely heavy and henceforth immovable for all practical purposes, which would allow them to make astronomical sightings through the hole, and they could watch and see which stars pass through through the hole and you know, be able to calculate mm-hmm. seasons and times and things. One of the things that he said about the Mayans was that they were incredibly uh, knowledgeable about time and, and the solar system. 
he said that the Mayan calendar has, has been studied extensively. And one of the things you don't hear today, the only thing you're hearing about is 2012, you know, the date that the Mayan calendar ends. But what he talked about also, he said that the Mayan calendar had its beginning time zero um, 4,000 years before Christ. So roughly 6,000 years ago from right now. Interesting. Isn't that very interesting? You don't hear that in the media, though. No, you just the that it's going to end. Correct. So we're, we're all waiting for that. <laughs> well, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, gentlemen, you wanna, anybody want to wrap up with some uh, comments that we didn't get to on your general impressions of the, the conference? Well, I, one of the other points that Mr. Gardner made, which I appreciated, was he said that when he was talking about that ideas have consequences, he also mentioned the idea that according to the Bible— Everyone has eternal life. We're all going to live forever. But the question is, where are you going to live mm. for eternity? Yeah, one of, one of the things that I took away, too, also, and it just reinforced my, uh, my belief set about evolution, is that it's a philosophical belief set, if not a faith-based belief set. Because it's just as much a religion as creationism that's is. That's correct. It's Be- not science. It's not based on science. It's not based on anything that can be reproduced. It's a mindset, okay? And what they do, they, they explore all of the evidences through the rose-colored glasses of, of evolution, okay, and humanism, but not from, uh, let's say, if you have a creation creationist perspective, you, see, you can see things completely differently. Um, it's an unproven theory, but it's being taught as fact in our schools. Um, you know, it's, it's so, so that's a scary thought. So it's very important for the believers to understand this, that uh, there's no science. It, it, in fact, it fits the definition more to science fiction than it does to science. Mm-hmm. And I already gave you the, uh, the definition of science. Well, well they, do, they do have things that they claim are evidence that support their view. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will, on future shows, go over some of those evidences and show how they are faulty and not true. So remember, you can reach us at Evidence for Faith. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can uh, email us from there. Set us up for talks at your church if you'd like. We are going to, how are we doing for time? We have about a minute left. John Katady is our, did I say that right, John? I always say that wrong. John Katady. Okay, is our engineer has been at the helm for us doing a great job. Next week, we'll talk about the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting and some of the amazing classes that were there. So this were some of the top apologists, theologians, philosophers from around the United States uh, down in New Orleans this weekend. So you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Sorry, next Sunday at 4 p.m. for New Time. Yep. For more reasons to believe, always remember the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs> <laughs>